Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about dumb money. Joining me, he's in over his head on a new tennis court. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, what's going on? Uh, could be doing better. I uh, placed a fairly sizable bet this weekend on Notre Dame beating Ohio State, which I was pretty optimistic about until that final play of the game when Notre Dame suddenly forgot that you needed 11 players on the field uh, when you have a major defensive play coming up. So that was tough. I mean, that I think really uh, I, I would hope you uh, I would hope you lost uh, less than some of the folks in this movie, though. I think so. You know, it could be worse. Right. So that is correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm I, smart about how I invest my money. I'm actually doing OK on my uh, co- the one college football pick and pull I, uh, pool I do. I've already gained. Um, I've already I've already gained back the money I made to I, I put into it at the start of the year. So I'm I'm doing OK. I haven't bet on any like individual games uh, lately, though, because uh, you're not allowed to legally do that in Florida. Thanks to a. Uh, you know, the dealings of the state of Florida and the Seminole tribe. But that's a that's a story for another day. Uh, today we're talking yes, about official uh, disclaimer right here. I live in the state of Tennessee and I am legally <laughs> allowed to gamble and do sports betting just in case anybody's listening to this. Nice <laughs> to get me for this. Is Tennessee a DraftKings state? Do you, do you do something else? Uh, I use Caesars. But yeah, okay. you can basically use any betting app that you want here. They legalized it back in 2019. So right around the time that I moved there. Ah, well, yeah, we have a... um. We, the Seminoles had an app here that was apparently very good, and it was it was like a one week thing, and then all of a sudden antitrust stuff happened, and it's been yeah, in, in, around for two years. And so, yeah, state of Florida missing out on all that revenue. Uh, but yeah, we're we're going to talk about a story about a company that you know had quite a bit of a uh, had quite a bit of inf- inflation, if not revenue, because you know they're a dying company, and that's because dumb money is about the GameStop short squeeze that occurred in January two thousand twenty one. As as those as some may remember, that was uh, kind of the result of of a movement that started on a Reddit page called uh, Wall Street Bets. It was kind of powered by a uh, low-level mass mutual financial advisor named uh, Keith Gill, who's played by Paul Dano, who got into like YouTubing about his investments and kind of slowly gained a following. Uh, within his username was Roaring Kitty. He had had a bunch of cat stuff going on in the backgrounds of his videos, and just you know got a devoted following and had the idea like, hey, I I really see a lot of potential in this. Uh, this GameStop, this GameStop share, despite the fact it's a brick and mortar business, and uh, all these uh, big hedge funds are trying to short the stock. So here's a good opportunity for us to kind of buy it up and uh, jack up this price, and you know, just kind of sh- show these guys what's up. And it kind of started. It, it started a movement, and and uh, the movie uh, follows a kind kind of how that happened, but also takes a look at what some of the people that might have actually gotten caught up in this movement that weren't Roaring Kitty uh, might have been thinking at the time, and the different kinds of circumstances different people might be facing who are just you're your reg- regular average Joes who are trying to just uh, make a make a buck or two in the stock market, and we, we see also other billionaires such as uh, uh, Gabe Plotkin who had his own hedge fund. He's played by Seth Rogen, but they're the ones that really tried to short it the most, and some other billionaires that were kind of like around him at the time, including uh, Steve Cohen, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who a lot of people have now come to be known as the guy that just uh, spectacularly failed at trying to buy a World Series for the Mets this year. He's bought the Mets not long after the not long after the events of this movie uh and uh, and there's also nick offerman uh 
playing Kenneth C. Griffin, who's just an, an, another kind of big time hedge fund guy that eventually tries to bail uh, Plotkin out and a whole host of other actors playing the supporting characters, including Pete Davidson, America Ferrara, Anthony Ramos, who plays an actual GameStop employee who gets caught up in this. Sebastian Stan playing Vlad Tenev, who is reteaming with Craig Gillespie, who uh, directed a lot of the Hulu series Pam and Tommy, and where he played uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Sebastian Stan just makes a lot of interesting choices these days, and he and he play, he played he played one of the two CEOs of Robinhood, which got caught up in this as well. Uh, Fred, uh, I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious before we jump into this, like w- w- as I learned when we first talked about doing this episode the other week, given what you do for a living, you are a little bit limited. In the kind of stock trading you can do, though you work a little more in the financial services industry, way more so than I do. So I'm curious what your level of like you know interest was when this kind of when this story first broke a while back. Because I'm not going to lie, like I I kind of got the nuts and bolts of it, but at the same time, I just you know I was pretty busy at work, and I'm like and I'm just not a finance guy, so I don't know if I necessarily actually ever took the time to learn a lot of the nitty gritty details of this story in the same way that I kind of did uh, in, in watching the movie, preparing for the podcast and whatnot. I'm curious, was this a story you followed a lot at the time with any level of interest? And did it kind of pique your interest in specific ways, given what you do do for a living, even if it, it really isn't quite working the stock market like the characters in these movies? What, 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 what was your relationship with this story as it was developing? Well, I followed that story very closely mm-hmm. uh, when it broke. And when you're just a spectator, you can afford to have a neutral amount of interest in it mm-hmm. because you're just watching from afar. But obviously, if you have a stake in it, then you feel about it quite differently. And some really awful stuff happened as the story started developing about how certain people were treated who had started to buy into this craze. But let me ask you one quick question because you mentioned the date. I had not realized that it had been almost three years since this happened because this was what in January 2021. So. Mm-hmm about a year into the pandemic, give or take. And if you had asked me before this movie uh, when the short squeeze actually happened, I would have said maybe a year ago or so. Um, time has become a very weird concept during the pandemic. And this was actually kind of a striking reminder of that, that, you know, because a lot of us have been working from home and we were really just kind of so caught up in the news about the pandemic that everything else just kind of became weirdly fragmented almost from our reality so yeah if you had asked me when the short squeeze happened i would not have been able to pinpoint when it happened with any amount of accuracy i probably would have guessed 2021 because i remember the the announcement for the movie coming out at some point um very soon after it happened i remember the guy so it's 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 adapted from a book the anti-social network written by ben mesrich who uh wrote the wrote the book wrote the book the uh he wrote the accidental billionaires right that kind of became the you know the 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 social network movie that or that got adopted into that i think that was the name of the book that he did for that yeah the accidental billionaire so he kind of you know has some uh has a bit of a history in writing this rip from the headline stuff but it came out like Honestly, it feels like, if I recall, like within a few weeks of the actual gist of this story happening, like announced he would be yeah, writing that and, and get adapted. So I remember, I remember that announcement happening soon after. But I knew they must have filmed this, like they probably filmed this, like last year. Well, actually, I guess that, that's the thing. I guess it, it, in theory, could have technically happened last year, I suppose. So I, I see what you're saying, but I, I probably would have guessed 2021 if you had told me. But I knew it wasn't 2020. Yeah, but it's still, I mean, you don't see that many movies come out these days that are about stuff that's like this recent history. Uh-huh. It's a, which is. It's interesting that they decided to kind of capitalize on the moment like that. Even a lot of the stuff we saw in the last year, like some of those, like all these different kind of, you know, 
uh, ripped from the headlines, tech TV adaptations, even that stuff was like a little more further out, you know, like um, whether it be like WeWork or uh, the, what was the whole, who won Elizabeth? They did, oh, the, oh, the, the dropout. The dropout. Yeah. Like oh, some of that stuff. It's like still stuff that happened like, you know, five, 10 years ago, something like that. Like this is less than three years ago. It's, it's, it's a very different kind of, you know, adaptation, true story type of film in that way. Even, even the social network was came out in 2010 and all that stuff happened in like 2003 to 2005. So this is a very, like we're, we're watching this from a different type of perspective than we normally do this stuff. Yeah. And that's actually, I think, part of the problem of telling a story like this before we even dive into the movie itself and mm -hmm. what some of its shortcomings are a lot of what the movie tries to get at especially near the end is that this was essentially a big revolution of the little people right that they were trying to even the playing field for non-wall street guys because the stock market had become very inaccessible because all of these major hedge funds on wall street have massive algorithms and computing power where they can really manipulate the market in a way that is just not accessible to your average Joe. And the sole idea of dumb money is that, yes, if they kind of team up and bond together, then yes, they can have an impact on the stock market. But the problem is when you're making a movie that has the message that this is basically a major revolution that's going to have a long-term impact, you can't really make that movie a year or two down the line because we haven't really been able to gauge that yet. Mm -hmm. So I think the movie kind of overextends itself in that way, trying to depict these characters as something that history hasn't really confirmed yet. So I think that's a bit of a weird angle for this movie to pursue, given that it only came out two, two and a half years after the events. That yeah, I think they were. Phrase. I think that, well, yeah, I mean, I guess part of they're trying to do a lot. And it's... you. And that's my biggest thing with the movie is that I, I, I would posit that maybe it should have been a mini series uh, if, if they do want to do this version of it as in, you know, but but also it's like it's trying to one, like tell the story of all these different kind of people, which I really do respect to like actually really show what it might be to be in the someone that's not in the 1% and how they might experience this. Uh, but, but on top of that, I think they want to kind of send the message. Oh, he really did change things forever. And they, they, they say at the end with the title card, like, Oh, you know, like they're really, really cutting back on like, you know, shorting stocks that all these big players are. And, you know, maybe they are because it's so recent that it's still, there's like, it's, it's, it's just a little scary in recent memory, but at the same time, like it, it, it you can't help but be cynical about how lasting that will be when there's also like four other title cards at the end at the movie there about how, yeah, well, all these people, like they just had their lawsuits dropped against them and there weren't really any repercussions. So it's like, all right, if, 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 if a lot of these guys can get off like that, like who's to say that like the, the, these guys aren't just cooking up some other way to kind of accomplish the same thing. It's, it, it's been too long. It, it has not been long enough to show that this is going to be any kind of deterrent or to allow us to think with any kind of confidence, that this is going to be some kind of deterrent. Right, and that's the big difference between this movie and the obvious comparison, which is The Big Short. Mm -hmm. The Big Short came out, I think it was in 2014, 2015, potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, point being, several years after the financial crash actually happened in 2008. So by that point in time, you could kind of convey to your audience, these are the events that led up to what happened in 2008, throughout 2006, 2007. And this is really sort of our in hindsight perspective that we can take on those events because several years have passed and we know what the major consequences have been and how they impacted everyone in the long run. Mm -hmm. You don't really have that benefit for dumb money yet. So that's where I think you struggle a little bit to really get at what the themes of the movie are because you're sort of limited by 
what these characters were really able to achieve. Yeah, so I kind of understand what it wants its themes to be, but it, it, you know, it wants it wants to show like what the power of the little guy can be if they actually you know show solidarity against uh, against this one percent. But I, my biggest issue with the movie, and I, I did, and I don't get me wrong, I, I did like some of it, or I did, I did like a good bit of it. But I, I did, I did like some of the performances these supporting players were given. But at the same time, I kept thinking over and over again, like, yeah, America Ferrara should sell this goddamn stock and like support her kids. You know, and mm-hmm. so or, or like Anthony Ramos has a net worth of one hundred and thirty eight dollars and some parents that presumably like, you know, are don't have the best, most tenable housing situation. Like, why is he taking this goddamn stand? Like, come on, man, like uh, save your family here. And I think in order to like fully grasp why these people are like all of a sudden coming together, like in just ra- rallying behind Gil. I, I don't think I spent enough time with them to truly get why they were that down with the cause. And, and, and I feel like maybe there's a version of this that's like a mini series where a lot of these people get their own episode or just like or just tells the tells it in the same direction that the, that the movie did, but slower. Such so you just get to spend more time with these people to see how they get radicalized to this extent. And instead, I kind of just found myself struggling with the fact that like I don't see how you're like so, so like all gung ho for Roaring Kitty at this point, just because I've watched you like watch you watch like his videos for like 30 seconds in the in the in the in, within the runtime of the movie. I cannot even imagine how much my parents would scream in my face if I ever sat at their dinner table and told them, yo, I have $23 million sitting in my account right now, but I haven't actually realized my gain yet because, you know, I'm taking a stand here for the little guy. So that's why I'm not cashing out. Yeah, and there's well, there's a scene with his parents. I don't, I and everything I just said about the other people that were investing that goes like triple for Shailene Woodley's wife character. And yeah. like, I mean, I maybe I wouldn't feel this way if it was someone other than Shailene Woodley who is in theory overqualified to just be playing a wife in a movie like this. But because she's Shailene Woodley, I feel like I should like be getting more from her. And instead, and, and she's just like, yeah, baby, like don't 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 cash out. It's like. You're the one that's like having to spend all this time with this this baby while he gets to sit down yeah, there in his yeah, freaking yeah. basement. Like, don't you want to like to be set for life now because of what he's done? And said she's just like all for it. It's like I know nothing about you, and I feel like any wife with with common sense would just be like, let's become twenty millionaires. I do think that the movie ha- has an interesting angle that I don't think it pursues especially well because it spreads itself too thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think it kind of gets to this, this idea of groupthink that involves people who aren't necessarily expert on a particular subject. Mm. And that kind of gets into the same idea of people winning the Powerball and suddenly they're billionaires. Mm. And they've never really dealt with those kinds of sums of money before and aren't really sure how to handle themselves. And that's why Mm. a lot of them ruin their lives because this isn't really something they ever properly prepared for. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the GameStop short squeeze really snuck up on people. Mm. Um, Even though you have Paul Dano sitting in his basement saying how confident he is in the stock. Even he didn't expect that it would explode to such a degree. And all of a sudden he becomes this accidental revolutionary, this leader of a movement that he never really planned to be. All he wanted was to give out some financial advice. And there's no real reason for people to trust this guy. I mean, everything about him doesn't scream financial expert. I mean, also they don't know anything. And also they don't know anything about him other than the way he looks and like what he says, they don't know him. Really, I don't think his identity really became known till like much like till a little later on, really, and there at least anything about him personally. But I, but I, I did, I did, I did. What's funny is that like I do feel like I kind of, and it's a testament to his performance, but also just the story that like I do feel like I kind of understood where he was coming from. 
and mm-hmm. and like why he was why he didn't sell because I think it's got to be something that's pretty thrilling about like gaining that kind of power over that kind of that that group of people and like having that that kind of following that will like actually take your lead. That's got to be somewhat intoxicating, you know. Yeah, and I do think it's a very sympathetic depiction on the whole, even oh, yeah. though Family it does, man. of course. Yeah, no, and it does of course raise the question: Is it really always the smartest idea to take advice from a guy on the internet? that you don't really know about. So you're right. I think what he's doing, there is certainly something there about, especially during the pandemic, when people were feeling powerless, right? A lot of people had been locked up in their homes. They weren't really able to go out anymore. A lot of them had lost their jobs. All of a sudden, you're able to, you're right, you're able to exert this huge amount of control from your basement, and you suddenly get this massive audience, especially for a guy who really seems to struggle with this on identity and insecurities. I mean, he has this brother who always makes fun of him. Uh, played hey, by Pete Davidson, Davidson, by the way. Yep. In uh, what I thought was actually a pretty funny performance. And I do think that, yes, even though there is a question about why his wife would support him the way that she does, uh, almost without asking a ton of questions, Paul Dano is a good enough actor to get into this character's mindset and show me Yes, I get why you would hold on to your shares and why you're taking the stand. I do get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, I I got it for him. And I just, I, I really didn't for anyone else as much as I enjoyed seeing those stories and, and being glad the movie found space for them. Because that's the one thing that I'd say is like the, that's the one thing I would like, I think I, I feel like I remember that being like one of my criticisms of both The Big Short and Wolf of Wall Street is that you didn't really see that much from that side. You know, as uh-huh. in, in Wolf of Wall Street, you see, you, I think you, you actually kind of see, uh, you see like a, a couple of the other sides of the calls that Jordan Belfort makes, but you never actually really see the consequences of that. There is, a, whereas there is a little bit of that, and, and I haven't rewatched this movie as recently as I've rewatched uh, Wolf of Wall Street. I've, there is a little bit more of that in Boiler Room, which is a movie that like has a lot, shares a lot of DNA with this as well. And I just thought that was somewhere like those movies could have actually shown what the effect was on these people. Whereas like, and I mean, I, I, I don't have any doubt what Adam McKay's attentions were with the big short, but he was much more concerned with just showing us the nuts and bolts and the, of what, of what these guys were doing. And in here, it's like, Hey, we're going to actually show you like, you know, what, what it's like for these other people here and uh, why some of them might be driven uh, to, to, to like, to invest and hope for something else. It's just like, when you show me that this person has a hundred and $180,000 in student loan debt, it's like, I, I, I need to know more as to like why they're not just going to pay off their goddamn debt. Uh, and I, and I really like that. Those are two actresses. I really, really like to play the two college students, uh, uh-huh. Tally, Tally Ryder, uh, who I think she's about to have another big indie movie come out. I think called the, the sweet East, I think that's played at some of the festivals. Uh, but she was also in never rarely, sometimes always. And Myla Harold, who's in bodies, body bodies. And, uh, my, my, my the, the great show industry, which I keep telling everyone on here to watch. So I love those actresses. I just didn't quite get where it took things with them. Uh, and is that is just what it is. You mentioned the Wolf of wall street. And I do find that an interesting comparison because that is a movie that I'm on the record as not being a particular fan of, even I though I that. generally like Scorsese. So my problem with that movie is Scorsese often gets accused and I think usually not rightfully so of glorifying crime to an extent. With The Wolf of Wall Street, I think those accusations have merit because there is a very strong through line in that movie for three hours that Jordan Belfort becomes hugely successful. Yes, because he's an asshole and because he's a criminal, but also because people are inherently dumb. 
and he was able to take advantage of what they were doing. And to me, the movie just goes way too much into showing how successful he is, how rich he is, how much sex he has, how much he enjoys partying and all the nice things that he gets to buy. I didn't really get that Scorsese did a particularly good job of showing us why this particular way of living your life is bad. Yeah, he gets his comeuppance, but ultimately, what is really his punishment? It's bad because of what what he's doing to other people to get it, but you don't really see that much of that besides him making that one sell when he's starting out. You don't really see anyone on the other end of those calls. Yeah, and that's exactly what I think. You're 100% correct. Even though I wish... You're right, it could have been a miniseries and it could have spent more time on these characters to get into their motivations a little bit more. But yes, I do appreciate that a lot of them were featured. There are also um, two performances here by uh, Anthony Ramos and Dane DeHaan as GameStop employees, uh, which is kind of a nice way of showing, okay, people are playing around with the stock of this company that's been considered worthless for years because people buy games online now and they don't really go to the mall anymore to these stores to purchase video games. But you still, at the very least, get their perspective on it and how people who are actually in this business are sort of impacted by this big news story. So it's nice that the movie actually took its time to show us that rather than just focus on the billionaires, which usually get the majority of the share time, uh, the screen time. So speaking of the billionaires, though, do you think it did make good use of the time it did, it did devote to them? And did you enjoy seeing what their machinations were behind the scenes? So let me actually ask you a quick question about that, mm-hmm. because I don't think the movie did an especially good job of explaining that, because there was this one hedge fund, Melvin Capital, that ultimately ended up losing a shit ton of money and that actually ended up going bankrupt the year after. So do you actually fully understand how shorting stocks works and why that would cause them to incur these huge losses? in a short squeeze uh my understanding that came and went but and that was something i was going to talk about also is that like i i, I we, we talked about this when we did the podcast on fair play that people haven't heard yet but I, I i think that people i think that like it did a good job for where you can appreciate what's going on without understanding all that minutiae but there are moments where i thought i understood it and there were moments where i didn't know if i understood it and that's what so i'll say so I haven't posted my letterbox mm-hmm. review yet, but I am actually going to include an example, a, a, slum, a somewhat oversimplified example of what it looks like that I think will help our listeners understand it just a little bit better if you don't mind me sharing that for me. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to quickly talk about three characters here. We're going to talk about Mickey, Goofy, and Donald. Okay. So Mickey owns 10 shares of Disney. Let's keep it nice and simple. So Mickey thinks that the Marvels, which is coming out in a few months, We'll get a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. It'll make $15 million on opening weekend. It'll be the worst movie ever. And as a result, Disney's share price is going to plummet. So Goofy, on the other hand, thinks that Mickey is a total idiot. He thinks that Disney's share price is going to go up. So what Goofy wants to do is he wants to buy 50 shares of Disney. From Mickey. Now remember, Mickey only has 10 shares of Disney. So what Mickey is going to do is he's going to go to his friend Donald and he's going to borrow 40 shares of Disney from Donald. And then he's going to give Goofy his own 10 shares and the 40 shares that he just borrowed from Donald. Now eventually, Mickey is going to have to give Donald back those 40 shares at some point. But if you do assume that the price of Disney is going to go down at some point. That means that you can buy back those 40 shares at a lower price. 
and then you'll return them to Donald and you will bank the profit because the price went down, right? So you sold them for a certain amount of money, you're buying them back for less and that profit is yours now after you give the shares back to Donald. Now, in this scenario, Mickey is happy, right? Because Mickey made money. Goofy and Donald are not happy because they have more shares now that are worth less. And that is usually how the stock market works if you buy shares and sell shares. Now, here's the problem. Let's say Mickey is wrong and the Disney share price goes up because the Marvels actually makes $3 billion at the box office. Now he has to buy those 40 shares back that he owes Donald for more money than he sold them for. And if you have shares, so you have a so-called long position, the absolute worst case scenario is that Disney goes bankrupt. Because if Disney goes bankrupt, your shares are worthless and you're no longer going to be able to make any kind of money on them, which sucks, but you only really lost your investment at that point. So the amount of money that you bought the shares for initially. But if you eventually need to buy the shares back that you are short because you need to return them to someone and the share price keeps going up and going up and going up, your losses could in theory grow to infinity because eventually you do still need to buy those shares back that you borrowed and return them to the person you borrowed them from. And in the movie, in order so, to get the money to borrow them back, is that when Plotkin goes to the other billionaires because he needs to get the money from someone? So they're presumably lending it to him at like a really high interest rate? Right. So the problem is eventually when people start to panic because they realize that the market is volatile, they're going to start asking for their money back because the money that Plotkin has came from his investors. But because he has these short positions, he can sell shares and get money to make his holders liquid. So what happens at that point is, yes, he needs a massive cash infusion so he can buy shares back and actually give that cash to his investors. So again, the example I just gave, 10 shares, 40 shares, 50 shares, that's peanuts ultimately. Mm -hmm. But when you hold shorts of millions and millions of stocks, your losses can go up to billions of dollars a day, just like what happened here. And that is really the risk that you incur if you short a position. You leave yourself exposed and vulnerable in case the price of the shares does go up. So that's why you usually only want to short shares for companies that are absolutely in the toilet, that are never going to go back up again, which it was a reasonable assumption for GameStop at one point, because again, that is not really a business model that seems successful. You know, it's but, funny. I, I just, I, I'm on, I'm on Plotkin's Wikipedia. I had no idea he was like now like one of the guys that purchased the Hornets from Michael Jordan. Like somehow he that guy mm. fucking guy landed on his feet. You know, that's the yeah, problem. Yeah, I, I, I looked, I looked that up right afterwards because I was curious. Okay, so obviously the guy now lives in a tiny apartment somewhere, right? Because he has to pay off all <laughs> his debts. Nope, nope, still rich. Apparently not accountable for his investors' money at all. And that is really, I think, what the other problem is with these types of movies. You kind of end on a hopeful note that the little guy was successful in pushing the big Wall Street head honchos to make some changes, but ultimately they all got away scot-free yet again. And that doesn't even get into what happens with Robin Hood here, which we haven't really talked oh, yeah. about yet, where ultimately they made the decision to stop trading these shares and to stop allowing people to buy shares, which is ultimately what led to the massive sell-off and those shares to drop back down again. So that's why I struggle with this idea that this is really a success story for anybody involved because at the end of the day, yeah, some people ended up making money, but 
a whole lot of them also ended up losing everything again because some parties and entities that operate in the market are just not going to fight fair. Did you understand all the minutia about the shenanigans that Robinhood was doing? Like, I kind of understand the idea of like just having a service on there and not taking commission and like, and why that was really sketchy. Like, how could they be valued where they are? I mean, but like, that's just kind of thing a lot of tech companies do is that they just really grow and grow and grow and get that value. And then they have to figure uh-huh. out how they're going to start turning a profit. But like, then they had all this stuff with the payment processors and whatnot. And I, I had a little trouble following that though. I don't know. I, I don't fault the movie that much for that. I'm not sure there's a way to not make that incredibly dry. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I will say like, I, because again, I'm somewhat limited in the amount of stock trading I can do. So I've never actually used Robinhood and I'm not especially familiar with their business model. I mean, I do understand the premise that you're really allowing your small-time traders to use the app to buy and sell shares. And normally, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Unless, of course, you have a massive short squeeze and all of a sudden you have everybody jumping on these shares. Mm -hmm. Because people who sniffed blood in the water early were still able to jump on the bandwagon before the stock price went up to $200 and $300 all of a sudden. But, I, but yeah, I do think that the movie somewhat struggled to explain some of these big concepts and just kind of assumed that viewers would either be familiar with them already because they watched The Big Short, I guess, or because they can kind of infer some of these uh, developments themselves without really having to get into the nitty gritty details. And again, I, 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 and I think, do think it's important to note, like, I think it's, the movie is still effective without having all of those nitty gritty details, like yes, 100%, 100% track. And then like, I, yeah, I don't need to know exactly what was going on with like, were you making money from the payment process or who are you dumping the cost onto? The fact is like, they were like a tech company that was in over their heads. And at a certain point, like they're, they're they becoming big by serving the little guy, but they are also backed financially by some of these same massive venture capital or, or hedge funds or whatnot, that kind of level of money. And when those people put pressure on them, they're going to, they might end up taking, they're, they might end up having to take action to save their own ass. That could be seen as like screwing over the, 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 the retail investors, the dumb money. And I thought, and I, and, and, and that, that all tracks, regardless of if you understand every little thing, every little decision that their CEOs are making. Yeah. And I do think there was also another component here, which I appreciated because it is a movie of its time. And this whole idea that people during the pandemic were out of work again, they were sitting at home, they weren't really able to do much of anything. And then you have this asshole tearing down a home to like build his tennis court in the middle <laughs> of Florida because he has the money, he has the power to make that happen, right? I mean, I think there was also a scene between Seth Rogen's character and Nick Offerman's character where they're talking about like, I think it was some kind of party that they threw. I don't remember the specifics, but there were a few scenes in there where you're just thinking, yeah, those assholes for them, life just kind of went on as it always does. They didn't really have to make any sacrifices whatsoever. um, While everybody else was trying their hardest to really just stay afloat. So I do think it kind of touches on that pretty effectively too. Even though, again, the movie isn't even that long. I think it's only about a hundred minutes, including Mm -hmm. end credits. And this is, I think a more massive story that encapsulates more people than it really gets credit for. And we keep circling back to the same point again and again. If you do want to have this many characters in there and you really want to do all of them justice and all the different sort of themes you're trying to address, you just need more time to work with. And that's really where I think the movie falls short. Well, yeah, I, 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 yeah. And I, I, I hate like, 
dumping on it too much for that because again i appreciate when the movie can get in and out in less than two hours but it's just this might have been one where the subject matter just deserve more time and maybe you don't want to make people sit for two and a half hours for that but again maybe you can get them to sit for you know eight 45 minute episodes or something like that so yeah and the, the other the other thing i was going to note before i jumped to just kind of talking about some of these individual performers is i was wondering we talked about how we, like, the movie just we're, we're not we're not far enough in the future yet to really say if there's going to be the lasting change that I think this movie wants to imply there's going to be on how the market acts. But I'm wondering, I thought it did do a pretty good job of like explaining like what the consequences of it were and what the what the different factors were and like what who was going to break and whatnot and if these people are going to hold together. And I think it, that did create a pretty good te- that did create some tension. And even if it is a true story, I didn't remember exactly how it resolved. You know, I knew like the game stock, the GameStop stock stabilized at some point in some in some way. It didn't keep going up exponentially forever. But I just I never I, did, I didn't watch the congressional hearings. And I think a lot of the audience isn't going to have either. So there's some real tension in exactly how it was going to resolve. Because I, I, I also knew that I, I also could kind of know, know for myself that uh, that Gil didn't necessarily become like a billionaire either. So I was like watching and I'm like, OK, like it's really important. They quote unquote hold the line here. But at the same time, they have these postscripts of these people obviously like selling something at least. And I, I don't know. I don't know if at the end of the day, maybe they really also explain like just like what what they like how much they could afford to have anyone start selling. And then how, with the amount of people who did cash out, was there some kind of would was there some kind of breaking point they managed not to hit or because it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of split the split the baby here and I sold half my stuff and I was good. And it's like, OK, well, like. If, if a lot of people did that was like did, was that some kind of big moment at some point or was it just so gradual that it just wasn't in the news like i for for, for how much time they put into showing the importance of these people towing the line it was kind of weird for them just to not to kind of just jump ahead and after after that and just be like okay here's what happened and without knowing exactly if there were consequences to that when a lot of these people were trying to cash out to some extent yeah so the first thing that happened is when Robinhood shut down the ability to buy new shares, mm-hmm. that's when everybody started to panic because when nobody can buy shares, then the price can't keep going up. Mm. So at that point, you basically hit the ceiling and that's when the massive sell started happening. Mm. So if you were lucky enough to buy an early and if you were one of Roaring Kitty's early subscribers and mm-hmm. were into his content early on and started buying into the frenzy then, then there was a pretty good chance that you were able to sell off fast enough to still make a massive profit. And that's really the sad thing here. When people started to blink and started to sell their shares, mm. it becomes a zero-sum game very quickly because as soon as people start selling shares, the price is going to go down and there'll be some people who won't be able to get rid of them fast enough. So yeah, there are going to be some winners like the two college students. They made a decent amount of money apparently and maybe they can pay off their student loans now. Um, and even the guy at GameStop actually did make a significant profit and was able to throw uh, the book back into Dane DeHaan's face, which I mm. thought was a pretty enjoyable scene. Yeah, he's really had a year playing just despicable characters, hasn't he, with mm-hmm. Oppenheimer and now this. So, yeah, I do think that it did to an extent focus on the winners of this short squeeze. But yeah, then you also have the nurse played by America Ferreira, where you realize, well, some people who were perhaps the most loyal to this movement are the ones that were hit the hardest uh, because they hold firm and they never ended up selling and now their shares are no longer really worth anything. So, yeah, you're right. It is kind of strange how in the end we're just kind of supposed to accept that, yeah, good for these guys. Hmm. Uh, They made money. 
but there was also a huge price to be paid for their individual success. Yeah, I just I, I knew that like Gil like obviously held off and like lost a lot, but then it's like oh he did have enough to buy his brother a car, and yeah. like a lot of these so people cool, yeah. a lot of these people sold and made some money, and it's like okay once they sold, you know, I, I guess I just want to see like maybe what the consequences were of the sale a little bit uh, of those sales a little bit when it was kind of implied that like Robinhood going under like caused a lot of that to lose value, but then at some point it also like obviously rebounded to some extent. Like I, I did feel like in some ways it maybe like yada yada at the end a little bit on that kind of uh, on that stuff and again that's the kind of thing you know it maybe doesn't happen if you have more time uh so yeah i, I that was just one other thought i just kind of had on where it, the movie might have been able to kind of come together a little better for me story-wise but i also i also want to know before we got out of here like i i did like i said earlier i did like a lot of these performances too and and as and, I, and again i think the financial stuff and like not fully understanding every little thing about the shorting that didn't matter at a certain point because the movie did a good enough job of explaining what all the what, who all the key players were and like what their positions were that I didn't necessarily feel that like left out. And but like as I was watching the movie, I wasn't sure if it was going to get there in that regard. But I was like, hey, I'm still enjoying this okay anyway, and uh, I'm I'm still enjoying this fine anyway because I just enjoy watching these people do their thing. Uh, were, were there any of the were, were there any other non Paul Dano performances you particularly found yourself enjoying? So I did kind of, an, I did get a lot of enjoyment out of Sebastian Stan's performance mm-hmm. for the major reason that, yeah, I mean, maybe Roaring Kitty isn't the most serious person on the outside in terms of how he dresses and how he talks. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, he had good advice and he knew what he was talking about. And then you have a guy like uh, Vlad Tenev, who's a billionaire and who's dressed super nicely. And as soon as he opens his mouth, <laughs> you realize that guy is just as much a buffoon as anybody else, and he really also has no idea how the stock market operates, clearly. Mm-hmm. And you could also make the same argument, in a sense, for Seth Rogen's character, uh, who also dresses a lot nicer, of course, than uh, Keith Gill does. But at the same time, he's the guy who lost billions of dollars every single day, uh, because his financial acumen was clearly not sound. And I do think those kinds of performances are pretty effective in getting across the idea that maybe there's a bit of polish to that turd, but ultimately mm. these guys are also full of shit when it comes to making sound investment advice, because ultimately it's never about the little guy. It's never about making them money. It's never about making these investors money. It's mm. like Matthew McConaughey said in Wolf of Wall Street, essentially. It's all about commission. It's all about the money that they make, about enriching themselves. Mm-hmm. And I do think it takes a certain nuance in those performances to show that, yeah, maybe they're not exactly the sharpest tool in the shit. And there is a, they sort of stumbled as backwards into success, but they were still able to take advantage of their position to enrich themselves. And I think there were some people in here like Seth Rogen, like Sebastian Stan, even the, Nick Offerman in what is a very straight performance uh, for what Damn, he normally yeah. does. Of getting that point across so i really did appreciate that yeah i would just say even if like you can debate whether or not you like there was anything more they should have done with the billionaires i thought they did what the, i thought those guys did what was asked for them and it was it's kind of funny to mm-hmm. I mean that like nick offerman and seth rogan are they've dabbled in drama but they're mostly comedic guys and it, it i think it shows that like hey vincent offrio is not a really comedic actor but at the same time i just think like I don't need that much more depth to the billionaires. I, they kind of, they are kind of what I expected them to be. And they're just, they're, they're just, they're very single-minded to make money and probably in pretty condescending. And it's like, I thought they did a good job of that. And it's cool that they gave Seth Rogen and Nick Offerman to the opportunity to do that kind of thing compared to other things we might know them for better. Um, 
Fred, is there anything else that we haven't touched on already about the movie that you wanted to mention before we wrapped up? Yeah, I, um, I, I do think, again, that it's kind of unfortunate that a movie like that is probably not going to make as much money as it probably should, because it does tell an interesting story. And um, I do think that, um, I, I think it played in Toronto, didn't it? So it's one of those like early yes. releases in September that played at a major film festival that probably isn't going to get enough traction to still be relevant a few weeks and months from now because a lot of studios are saving their really heavy hitters from those festivals for the next few weeks and months to come. So it is unfortunately more than likely not going to get as much attention as the story and I do think the performances deserve. But on the other hand, yeah, I do think this movie really would have benefited from maybe waiting a few more years or as we said plenty of times already, uh, by giving it a little bit more of a running time, either in the form of another 30 minutes or by turning it into a mini series, even, even which if is kind was... of the trend for a lot of current, which is kind of the trend for a lot of current events. I feel like uh, yeah. just letting it breathe a little bit more by giving it like six or eight episodes. Uh, I, would, I would tell the story fully. Yeah. And I would argue that's important for the more recent ones because we just remember them better. So if you're just going to be able to hit the high points, everyone's already going to kind of feel like they know what, what like yeah, exactly. they know that stuff. So if you delve deeper, you're going to tell these people something they don't know. Uh, I, and I'll, I'll, and then, yeah, so I, I'm in, in agreement with you, um, on, on, on that for sure. I just, uh, and the other point though, I was going to make is that like, even if it had gotten a different kind of release awards season push strategy, I, I think we both like Paul Dana's performance the most in this and the Academy hates him. So, you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have, uh, paid dividends for him. He inexplicably <laughs> didn't get an Oscar nomination for the Fablemans last year while Judd Hirsch did for that one damn scene. Uh, so you know, it is what it is, but I, I, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm still, I guess I'm glad the movie exists, even if I could see myself liking a different version of it better. I typically, I typically, you know, and, and enjoy Craig Gillespie. And I, I, I mean, the movie got there for me. It just didn't, you know, it just wasn't quite, it, it was, I had, I had a good time. I, I, and you know, you made the point about making money at $30 million budget, which is you know, interesting. Uh, you know, I guess, decent amount of star power and like they're having to use some some expensive sets i guess for some, some of where these billionaires are hanging out but like it's also a covid movie in a way you know it's, it's it takes you back to the time and place where it's like just pre-vaccine right as it's happening and so but because of that there's not there's, there's only a limited number of like, you know, casts and extras you actually really need. And a lot of this is just people sitting in chairs and rooms. So it's weird that it costs $30 million, but be very surprised if it makes that. But my Tuesday night showing was like damn near capacity, which I was kind of surprised by. So uh, maybe, maybe, it'll, impressive. maybe it'll get back to there. Maybe it was just because my movie theater does Tuesday specials and everyone also went there. Um, but yeah, no. And the only other thing is I would just say, like I mentioned earlier, like shout out Sebastian Stan. Like he, he, he showed up ready to like, just be pathetic. You know, yeah. it's just, it's just like, he's captain America, but like he's, he, he tries to do these other roles in which he's, you know, just not, uh, or, or he's not captain America. He's the winter soldier. Bucky. But, Bucky, but like, you know, he's like, I'm going to, I want, I want to just look all weird and pathetic and other kinds of roles. And so people don't only think of me in that one way. And I, and like, I mean, oh, oh he's also like kind of a, a repeat Craig, Craig Gillespie, uh, collaborator, collaborator, like Seth Rogen, cause he was in I, Tonya, and he is like similarly kind of creepy in I, Tonya. So I just appreciate that he's willing to push himself in those ways. Uh, but it's yeah. also the second time, by the way, that Paul Dano and Seth Rogen have been pinned against each other in a movie. You just mentioned the Fablemans, right? And now oh, here we right. have them again. Yeah, no, I, I had, honestly, I don't it's even becoming quite a double act. Yeah, I didn't, I don't even, I never even thought of that till now. And it's, which is very funny because those guys come have like come from such different backgrounds. But, you know, Steven Spielberg was, you know, uh, intrigued to, you know, cast Seth Rogen as, as his uh, stand in for his, uh, his uh, quote unquote uncle. So, uh, you know, very, 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 very interesting. 
Um, yeah, I think that's, that's about it. I think both Fred and I would uh, still recommend checking dumb money out. It's, uh, always great that, as we always say on this podcast, we always want to support the $30 million movies. I just don't think many of them make money these days, unfortunately. Um, Fred, anything else you've been watching in the last week since we talked to you that you wanted to give a shout out to? Yeah, I'm still making my way through some of the Sundance and other film festival releases that are available for streaming now. Uh, do want to draw people's attention to a small handful of them. Uh, one of them that's been out on Hulu for a few months already is Rye Lane, which mm-hmm. is a very charming, funny movie that uh, without end credits only runs about 75 minutes, I think. Wow. Uh, set in London, uh, kind of a romantic comedy with some touches of uh, Richard Linklater's um, Before Sunrise trilogy. Um, specifically, specifically Before Sunset. Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that as well. And it's really kind of wholesome. You've got two people, recent breakups, uh, just spending a day together and really kind of helping each other uh, through the pain with some laughs, some witty and quirky interactions, which I really appreciate it. I didn't have this one on my radar at all when we were watching a few movies at Sundance earlier this year. And that's kind of the problem because there isn't really a ton of star power in this. Uh, and when you pick and choose those movies when you don't really have reviews available yet. You need some way of deciding which ones to watch. And this one just didn't make the list, but I would highly recommend people check that one out. It is on Hulu. Uh, The other one that I watched recently is called Cassandro, which only just dropped on Prime a few days ago. I've not heard about that. Yeah, that one's starring uh, Gael Garcia Bernal as um, a uh, gay uh, lucha libre wrestler in the early 1980s. Um, that is a sport people in the United States are probably most familiar with from Nacho Libre with Jack Black. But it really is kind of a cultural pastime in Mexico. Uh, and he was somebody who was one of the first um, wrestlers who kind of embraced uh, his gay identity and became a so-called exotico, which is uh, a wrestler who performs in drag. Uh, and a lot of times they were really just set up for failure and they were always the losers in those wrestling matches. But because he was very charismatic, very charming, people really took to him. So he was able to build a successful career for himself uh, in that particular sport. Based on a true story, a great performance by Gael Garcia Bernal, probably one of the best ones he's given in quite some time, um, even though I did enjoy him in Station Eleven, uh, where he was also pretty good at. Nice to see the guy have a moment. Um, also not super long, maybe an hour and a half, I would say of running time without credits. Uh, That one's available for streaming on Prime now. Got very good reviews uh, coming out of Sundance. So I would definitely recommend people check that one out as well. And then the last one, which I haven't seen yet, but I will probably watch that right away as soon as we get off this call. Uh, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar by Wes Anderson is now streaming on Netflix. Uh, It's a 37 minute short film, the first out of four that are going to be released over the next few days. If you're a Wes Anderson fan, which I am sure a lot of you listeners are, this one got really good reviews when it premiered in Venice. Uh, it's starring Benedict Cumberbatch in a uh, an, an adaptation of a Roald style short story. An author Wes Anderson is familiar with because he already did a really good job with Fantastic Mr. Fox a while back. So again, those are going to be four short films that are going to be dropping on Netflix within a four-day time period, I believe. The first one is available uh, today, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. And by the time you release this, all four will be available for streaming, which means most of our listeners will probably have watched them already. But if they haven't, for whatever reason, uh, just something to keep in mind. Wait, so to be clear, they are all Wes Anderson shorts? Yes. Oh, wow. 
I okay, okay. I I I understood the first one was I didn't realize you said that all all four. I I I I thought I knew he had a short. Or maybe I was getting that confused with the short film that um that Pedro Almodovar has out. I or I maybe I heard yeah. that was and because I know that that one was kind of a big deal too and was pretty well received. But I think that um I I think I think I just missed that like Wes Anderson had four coming out. I I think I'd heard of the Henry mm-hmm. Sugarman one. I just hadn't heard of the, the any of the names of the other ones for whatever reason. So uh, that that that's exciting. And also, it's uh, exciting for me is I'm not really a Wes Anderson guy. I don't hate him. It's mm. just I I don't in none almost none of his movies click with me like it seems like m- most of them do with other people. So it's like you know it's a short is like a less of a commitment. So maybe one of them will capture <laughs> me. And, and I'll be less, I'll be, I'll go into it a little more open. I don't want to say open-minded, but just be more willing to like tackle that with the limited free time I have on my hands right now. So uh, we'll see. So good, good recommendation. I appreciate you bringing all that to my attention. I don't have a ton of new stuff to recommend more. I've been, because uh, most of the movies I've watched recently have already been things I've recorded on, but I will say as far as TV goes uh, last week, the fourth and final season of sex education dropped on Netflix. That is a very fun show about like, you know, uh, teenagers in rural, I guess, I don't know if rural is the right word, but in, in the suburbs in England, you know, like, uh, dealing with all the coming of age stuff that happens at that age with a lot of it's sex, but some of it doesn't focus on that also. And, uh, it's just, I, 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 I've only watched the first two or three episodes of the new season. Uh, and I've heard it's not as good as some of the previous ones, but there's still plenty to like in it. A lot of great performances, pretty sure Greta Gerwig was binging it when she casted Barbie, uh, cause a lot of people, a lot of the same people are there. Uh, but like the first three seasons are just great. And I hope people find it if they haven't already though, I think it's probably pretty popular because most stuff that gets that level on Netflix is, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's about all I, I, th- I think I had one other one I was maybe going to plug, but I'll probably hold off on that. Cause I just don't know if I'm going to make it to any, anything else, uh, anything else anytime soon. And I'm just kind of catching up with the TV where I can. So, uh, that about wraps it up for today, Fred, uh, where can people find you on Letterboxd? Yes, uh, please do follow me on Letterboxd if you're not already. Uh, username is uh, Frederick0702, or you can just type in my actual name, Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, Twitter handle is at Fred the German. Uh, not really much of a tweeter these days, but do feel free to give me a follow there as well. Yeah, I'm not much of a letterboxer these days, but I, I, I will catch mm. up before the end of the year. It's Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Letterboxd and Twitter slash X podcast, Twitter is at real movie pod podcast, email us real movie pod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, we'll have an episode on bottoms and then not, and then, and then we might have like one other thing. Maybe, maybe we'll do the creator uh, too, which I, I Fred reminded me he was coming out this weekend. And then after that, you might just be here me and Fred again, talking about the financial industry because fair play comes to Netflix soon, a movie that you guys should all seek out when it gets there. So I want to thank Fred again for joining us. I want to thank all of you for listening and we'll see you next time.